Day 6 of Totus Tuus' Novena With quotes from John Paul II's encyclical Redemptor Hominis If therefore our time, the time of our generation, the time that is approaching the end of the second millennium of the Christian era, shows itself a time of great progress, it is also seen as a time of threat in many forms for man. The Church must speak of this threat to all people of goodwill, and must always carry on a dialogue with them about it. Man's situation in the modern world seems indeed to be far removed from the objective demands of the moral order, from the requirements of justice, and even more of social love. We are dealing here only with that which found expression in the Creator's first message to man, at the moment in which he was giving him the earth, to subdue it. This first message was confirmed by Christ the Lord in the mystery of the redemption. This is expressed by the Second Vatican Council in these beautiful chapters of its teaching that concern man's kingship, that is to say, his call to share in the kingly function, the munus regali of Christ himself. The essential meaning of this kingship and dominion of man over the visible world, which the Creator himself gave man for his task, consists in the priority of ethics over technology, in the primacy of the person over things, and in the superiority of spirit over matter. This is why all phases of present-day progress must be followed attentively. Each stage of that progress must, so to speak, be x-rayed from this point of view. What is in question is the advancement of persons, not just the multiplying of things that people can use. It is a matter, as a contemporary philosopher has said, and as the Council has stated, not so much of having more, as of being more. Indeed, there is already a real perceptible danger that while man's dominion over the world of things is making enormous advances, he should lose the essential threads of his dominion and in various ways let his humanity be subjected to the world and become himself something subject to manipulation in many ways, even if the manipulation is often not perceptible directly. Through the whole of the organization of community life, through the production system and through pressure from the means of social communication, man cannot relinquish himself or the place in the visible world that belongs to him. He cannot become the slave of things, the slave of economic systems, the slave of production, the slave of his own products. A civilization purely materialistic in outline condemns man to such slavery, even if at times, no doubt, this occurs contrary to the intentions and the very premises of its pioneers. The present solicitude for man certainly has at its root this problem. It is not a matter here merely of giving an abstract answer to the question, who is man? It is a matter of the whole of the dynamism of life and civilization. It is a matter of the meaningfulness of the various initiatives of everyday life, and also of the premises for many civilization programs, political programs, economic ones, social ones, state ones, and many others. If we make bold to describe man's situation in the modern world, as far removed from the objective demands of the moral order, from the exigences of justice, and still more from social love. We do so because this is confirmed by the well-known facts and comparisons 
that have already on various occasions found an echo in the pages of statements by the popes, the council and the synod. Man's situation today is certainly not uniform, but marked with numerous differences. These differences have causes in history, but they also have strong ethical effects. Indeed, everyone is familiar with the picture of the consumer civilization, which consists in a certain surplus of goods necessary for man and for entire societies. And we are dealing precisely with the rich, highly developed societies, while the remaining societies, at least broad sectors of them, are suffering from hunger, with many people dying each day of starvation and malnutrition. Hand in hand go a certain abuse of freedom by one group, an abuse linked precisely with a consumer attitude uncontrolled by ethics, and a limitation by it of the freedom of the others, that is to say, those suffering marked shortages and being driven to conditions of even worse misery and destitution. This pattern, which is familiar to all, and the contrast referred to in the documents giving their teaching by the popes of this century, most recently by John XXIII and by Paul VI, represent, as it were, the gigantic development of the parable in the Bible of the rich banqueter and the poor man Lazarus. So widespread is the phenomenon that it brings into question the financial, monetary, production and commercial mechanisms that, resting on various political pressures, support the world economy. These are proving incapable either of remedying the unjust social situations inherited from the past or of dealing with the urgent challenges and ethical demands of the present. By submitting man to tensions created by himself, dilapidating at an accelerated pace material and energy resources, and compromising the geophysical environment, these structures unceasingly make the areas of misery spread, accompanied by anguish, frustration and bitterness. We have before us here a great drama that can leave nobody indifferent. The person who, on the one hand, is trying to draw the maximum profit, and on the other hand, is paying the price in damage and injury, is always man. The drama is made still worse by the presence close at hand of the privileged social classes and of the rich countries, which accumulate goods to an excessive degree, and the misuse of whose riches very often becomes the cause of various ills. Add to this the fever of inflation and the plague of unemployment. These are further symptoms of the moral disorder that is being noticed in the world situation, and therefore requires daring creative resolves in keeping with man's authentic dignity. Such a task is not an impossible one. The principle of solidarity in a wide sense, must inspire the effective search for appropriate institutions and mechanisms, whether in the sector of trade, where the laws of healthy competition must be allowed to lead the way, or on the level of a wider and a more immediate redistribution of riches and of control over them, in order that the economically developing peoples may be able not only to satisfy their essential needs, but also to advance gradually and effectively. This difficult road of the indispensable transformation of the structures of economic life is one on which it will not be easy to go forward without the intervention of a true conversion of mind, will and heart. The task requires resolute commitment by individuals and peoples that are free and linked in solidarity. All too often, 
Freedom is confused with the instinct for individual or collective interest, or with the interest for combat and domination, whatever be the ideological colours with which they are covered. Obviously, these instincts exist and are operative, but no truly human economy will be possible unless they are taken up, directed and dominated by the deepest powers in man, which decide the true culture of peoples. These are the very sources for the effort which will express man's true freedom and which will be capable of ensuring it in the economic field also. Economic development, with every factor in its adequate functioning, must be constantly programmed and realized within a perspective of universal joint development of each individual and people, as was convincingly recalled by my predecessor Paul VI in Populorum Progressio. Otherwise, the category of economic progress becomes in isolation a superior category subordinating the whole of human existence to its partial demands, suffocating man, breaking up society, and ending by entangling itself in its own tensions and excesses. It is possible to undertake this duty. This is testified by the certain facts and the results, which it would be difficult to mention more analytically here. However, one thing is certain. At the basis of this gigantic sector, it is necessary to establish, accept and deepen the sense of moral responsibility, which man must undertake. Again and always, man. This responsibility becomes especially evident for us Christians when we recall, and we should always recall it, the scene of the Last Judgment according to the words of Christ related in Matthew's Gospel. This eschatological scene must always be applied to man's history. It must always be made the measure for human acts as an essential outline for an examination of conscience by each and every one. I was hungry and you gave me no food. Naked, and you did not clothe me. In prison, and you did not visit me. These words become charged with even stronger warning when we think that, instead of bread and cultural aid, the new states and nations awakening to independent life are being offered, sometimes in abundance, modern weapons and means of destruction placed at the service of armed conflicts and wars that are not so much a requirement for defending their just rights and their sovereignty, but rather a form of chauvinism, imperialism and neo-colonialism of one kind or another. We all know well that the areas of misery and hunger on our globe could have been made fertile in a short time, if the gigantic investments for armaments at the service of war and destruction had been changed into investments for food at the service of life. This consideration will perhaps remain in part an abstract one. It will perhaps offer both sides an occasion for mutual accusation, each forgetting its own faults. It will perhaps provoke new accusations against the Church. The Church, however, which has no weapons at her disposal apart from those of the Spirit, of the Word and of Love, cannot renounce her proclamation of the Word in season and out of season, for this reason, she does not cease to implore each side of the two and to beg everybody in the name of God and in the name of man. Do not kill. Do not prepare destruction and extermination for men. 
Think of your brothers and sisters who are suffering hunger and misery. Respect each one's dignity and freedom. This century has so far been a century of great calamities for man, of great devastations, not only material ones but also moral ones. Indeed, perhaps above all, moral ones. Admittedly, it is not easy to compare one age or one century with another under this aspect, since that depends also on changing historical standards. Nevertheless, without applying these comparisons, one still cannot fail to see that this century has so far been one in which people have provided many injustices and sufferings for themselves. Has this process been decisively curbed? In any case, we cannot fail to recall at this point, with esteem and profound hope for the future, the magnificent effort made to give life to the United Nations organization, an effort conducive to the definition and establishment of man's objective and inviolable rights, with the member states obliging each other to observe them rigorously. This commitment has been accepted and ratified by almost all present-day states, and this should constitute a guarantee that human rights will become throughout the world a fundamental principle of work for man's welfare. There is no need for the Church to confirm how closely this problem is linked with her mission in the modern world. Indeed, it is at the very basis of social and international peace, as has been declared by John XXIII, the Second Vatican Council, and later Paul VI, in detailed documents. After all, Peace comes down to respect for man's inviolable rights. Opus Justitia Pax While war springs from the violation of these rights and brings with it still graver violations of them. If human rights are violated in time of peace, this is particularly painful and from the point of view of progress, it represents an incomprehensible manifestation of activity directed against man which can in no way be reconciled with any program that describes itself as humanistic. And what social, economic, political or cultural program could renounce this description? We are firmly convinced that there is no program in today's world in which man is not invariably brought to the fore, even when the platforms of the programs are made up of conflicting ideologies concerning the way of conceiving the world. If in spite of these premises, human rights are being violated in various ways. If in practice we see before us concentration camps, violence, torture, terrorism and discrimination in many forms, this must then be the consequence of the other premises. Undermining and often almost annihilating the effectiveness of the humanistic premises of these modern programs and systems. This necessarily imposes the duty to submit these programs to continual revision from the point of view of the objective and inviolable rights of man. The Declaration of Human Rights, linked with the setting up of the United Nations Organization, certainly had as its aim not only to depart from the horrible experiences of the last war, but also to create the basis for continual revision of programs, systems and regimes precisely from this single fundamental point of view, namely the welfare of man, or, let us say, of the person and the community, which must, as a fundamental factor in the common good, constitute the essential criterion for all programs, systems and regimes. If the opposite happens, 
human life is, even in time of peace, condemned to various sufferings. And along with these various sufferings, there is a development of various forms of domination, totalitarianism, neo-colonialism, and imperialism, which are a threat also to the harmonious living together of the nations. Indeed, it is a significant fact, repeatedly confirmed by the experiences of history, that violation of the rights of man goes hand in hand with violation of the rights of the nation, with which man is united by organic links as with a larger family. Already in the first half of this century, when various state totalitarianisms were developing, which, as is well known, led to the horrible catastrophe of war, the Church clearly outlined her position with regard to these regimes that, to all appearances, were acting for a higher good, namely the good of the state. While history was to show instead that the good in question was only that of a certain party, which had been identified with the state. In reality. Those regimes had restricted the rights of the citizens, denying them recognition, precisely of those inviolable human rights that have reached formulation on the international level in the middle of our century. While sharing the joy of all people of goodwill, of all people who truly love justice and peace, at this conquest, the Church, aware that the letter on its own can kill, while only the spirit gives life, must continually ask. Together with these people of goodwill, whether the declaration of human rights and the acceptance of their letter mean everywhere also the actualization of their spirit. Indeed, well-founded fears arise that very often we are still far from this actualization, and that at times the spirit of social and public life is painfully opposed to the declared letter of human rights. This state of things, which is burdensome for the societies concerned. Would place special responsibility towards these societies, and the history of man on those contributing to its establishment. The essential sense of the state as a political community consists in that the society and people composing it are master and sovereign of their own destiny. This sense remains unrealized if, instead of the exercise of power with the moral participation of the society or people, what we see is the imposition of power. By a certain group upon all the other members of the society, this is essential in the present age, with its enormous increase in people's social awareness, and the accompanying need for the citizens to have a right share in the political life of the community, while taking account of the real conditions of each people and the necessary vigor of public authority. These, therefore, are questions of primary importance from the point of view of the progress of man himself and the overall development of his humanity. The Church has always taught the duty to act for the common good, and in so doing, has likewise educated good citizens for each state. Furthermore, she has always taught that the fundamental duty of power is solicitude for the common good of society. This is what gives power its fundamental rights. Precisely in the name of these premises of the objective ethical order. The rights of power can only be understood on the basis of respect for the objective and inviolable rights of man. The common good that authority in the state serves is brought to full realization only when all the citizens are sure of their rights. The lack of this leads to the dissolution of society, opposition by citizens to authority, or a situation of oppression 
intimidation, violence and terrorism, of which many examples have been provided by the totalitarianisms of this century. Thus the principle of human rights is of profound concern to the area of social justice and is the measure by which it can be tested in the life of political bodies. These rights are rightly reckoned to include the right to religious freedom, together with the right to freedom of conscience. The Second Vatican Council considered especially necessary the preparation of a fairly long declaration on this subject. This is the document called Dignitatis Humanae, in which is expressed not only the theological concept of the question, but also the concept reached from the point of view of natural law, that is to say, from the purely human position, on the basis of the premises given by man's own experience, his reason and his sense of human dignity. Certainly the curtailment of the religious freedom of individuals and communities is not only a painful experience, but it is, above all, an attack on man's very dignity, independently of the religion professed, or of the concept of the world which these individuals and communities have. The curtailment and violation of religious freedom are in contrast with man's dignity and his objective rights. The Council document mentioned above states clearly enough what that curtailment or violation of religious freedom is. In this case, we are undoubtedly confronted with a radical injustice with regard to what is particularly deep within man, what is authentically human. Indeed, even the phenomenon of unbelief, a-religiousness and atheism as a human phenomenon is understood only in relation to the phenomenon of religion and faith. It is therefore difficult, even from a purely human point of view, to accept a position that gives only atheism the right of citizenship in public and social life, while believers are, as though by principle, barely tolerated or are treated as second-class citizens, or are even, and this has already happened, entirely deprived of the rights of citizenship. Even if briefly, this subject must also be dealt with, because it too enters into the complex of man's situations in the present-day world, and because it too gives evidence of the degree to which this situation is overburdened by prejudices and injustices of various kinds. If we refrain from entering into details in this field, in which we would have a special right or duty to do so. It is above all because, together with all those who are suffering the torments of discrimination and persecution for the name of God, we are guided by faith in the redeeming power of the cross of Christ. However, because of my office, I appeal in the name of all believers throughout the world to those on whom the organization of social and public life in some way depends, earnestly requesting them to respect the rights of religion and of the Church's activity. No privilege is asked for, but only respect for an elementary right. Actuation of this right is one of the fundamental tests of man's authentic progress in any regime, in any society, system or milieu. Let us pray. O Lord Jesus Christ, Keep us in your love. Let us hear your voice and believe what you say. For you alone have the words of life. Teach us how to profess our faith, bestow our love and impart our hope to others. 
Make us convincing witnesses to your gospel in a world so much in need of your saving grace. Make us the new people of the Beatitudes that we may be the salt of the earth and the light of the world at the beginning of the third Christian millennium. Mary, Mother of Christ and of the Church, pray for us. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.